So, while not exactly the best episode of the bunch, I did still enjoy this one. Uh, apparently this was another episode that was hit by budget issues. Isn't that always the problem? And uh, there was supposed to be this big epic thing, and they were going to do a, a more of a conclusion with regards to Data and his development. I've noticed Melissa Snodgrass is very interested in developing Data as a character. I kind of like that. I feel like, although of course she would not use this terminology, she was effectively trying to present a droid effect through his development throughout the series and received a lot of pushback against that, which I'm not sure what to make of. Mm. Because I am one of those people who would have liked it if Data moved forward more throughout TNG. Data actually does develop relatively significantly, probably up until about Season 4, and then he just kind of stops, and then he suddenly gets the emotion ship in the movies. I, I feel that was doing the character a bit of a disservice. But I digress. I decided to look up the music thing. So, apparently, of the 26 episodes in Season 3, Ron Jones only did 11 of them. Can you believe that? I was a little bit surprised at first. When I think of Season 3, I can think of plenty of really exciting and interesting songs. Never mind the obvious one of Best of Both Worlds. Um, the music of uh, Yesterday's Enterprise comes to mind immediately, but the one that really always sticks with me for some weird reason is Booby Trap. Like, I, I can hear that music right now in my head. But then I realized, and I swear I didn't plan this, that I was unintentionally making my own point for me. Ron Jones's music is very memorable. The rest of it is kind of not. I actually can't tell you the music that was in this episode. No, seriously, I don't remember it. At no point in time did it strike me as distinct. I don't mean that as an insult. I mean, after I'd finished the episode, I look at my notes and I notice I wrote the Ron Jones thing in the upper left because I looked it up before I started the episode. I was like, oh yeah, did he do this episode? I don't think he did because I don't remember a single line of, of music from the whole episode. Yeah. Make of that what you will. As I've said over in Voyager, there's two differing perspectives on that. Using the music as a tool to enhance and you know make scenes more memorable or using, this, using the music as wallpaper, something that you're not supposed to notice, and that is just kind of there because if it wasn't, it would be awkward. I'm not necessarily saying that one of those is right or wrong. I'm just saying that I prefer the former. Call me a weirdo. <sighs> Melissa Snodgrass originally had a slightly different presentation on this, uh, more about the development of data and his uh, movement forward, which I kind of talked about already. Um, but I mention this because after reading her, her comments on it, I get the very strong impression she was going for a latent image kind of a thing. Not the term, the episode, uh, which is Season 5, Episode 11 of Voyager. Good episode, by the way. Um, I mention that because she mentioned this idea that the purpose was that Data was going to find a situation in which logic didn't work. That there was no way to logic his way through the situation. I find that kind of funny. Obviously, this doesn't apply to the episode itself, but to me, the solution to the episode was obvious from the very beginning. You attempt conversation. Okay. So, first, and this is funny because he follows the progression of this. First, he converses with the leader. That doesn't work, for reasons I'll get to in a moment. Then you converse with the people, which didn't work. Then you make your point very, very clear. And I like what Data did at the end. He even warned them that he was coming. And then he, by himself, takes them all out. Of course he does. He's Data. I mean, ignoring the fact that Data once lost to a bunch of Ferengi, <clears throat> he's supposed to be really good, strong, fast, etc. And he has a working phaser. So, and I did that by myself in seconds. There's more of them. They have better weapons, and they'll be attacking from orbit. 
Like, to me, that was just the obvious argument from the very beginning. They're go they don't even have to beam down to destroy you. Orbital bombardment is a very real problem when it comes to a science fiction setting. It's a problem that a planetary p power has only a couple ways of dealing with. And these people, with their yurts, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say it that way, but these people have no absolute way of dealing with that whatsoever. Like, I get the whole, you want to stay and defend your land, but you won't be doing that. You will simply be dying with it. <sighs> Anyways. So, uh, Goshevin's an idiot. Um, I don't want to necessarily hate the actor for that. I, I know that's a weird thing to comment on, but his acting is bad. He does not do a good job of his role. In fact, he's probably one of the biggest reasons why this episode doesn't quite work for me, why it's merely a good episode instead of great or amazing or whatever, because there's some really good concepts here. But Goshevin's an idiot, and he acts... He acts like Alexis. Now, if you don't know who that is... That was a woman in the episode, I don't remember the number right now, but it's the episode Sir Paradise over on Deep Space Nine. Um, as I made very, very clear my opinion of that, and that it says my opinion, I had the belief that she did not actually truly believe in her own ideals and cause. She kind of did, but she wanted the power. She was interested in maintaining her hold as dictator of the colony. Now, that's understandable. But Goshevin is played as if he's a dictator like Alexis, but his, his writing in several scenes is more like he's not. And I feel like that disconnect really just takes me away from the character. Um, because forced relocation, that's a bad topic. That's a horrible thing to have forced upon you. And that's a valid thing to be brought up. The problem is, this is not forced relocation because of greed. This is not forced relocation because you are you know, irrelevant or an underclass. This is forced relocation because we're trying to save your lives from what is functionally a hostile race. You are facing forced relocation or extermination. And remember, the Federation was willing to foot the bill on getting them set up in another colony and then leaving them alone. This is about as benevolent as it's possible for them to be. And yet, <laughs> they're all like, no, we won't be pushed off our land. We won't be bullied. The reason I say Goshevin is an idiot, though, isn't just because of the acting. Imagine you're the leader of a colony of 15,000 people, not exactly a small group, and you are told that something horrible is coming to kill you. Your reaction is, okay, go away. <laughs> what? I mean, the obvious first reaction to that should be something along the lines of verification. More information, you know? Now, considering that this is a Federation personnel and there's ways of proving that, there's a really reasonably good chance that he is, in fact, telling the truth, that this is not a deception. And it's worth noting that Goshevin at no point in time thinks that Data is deceiving them. Instead, he acts as though Data is simply an idiot. Like, oh, yeah, sure. They're gonna come try and kick us off our land. Well, me and my stick will have something to say about that. Right? So that's the first thing. Second thing, why does he not allow people to vote on the matter? He actually mentions at one point that he is an elected leader. Does he then claim total superiority over the situation? There's a scene later where he tries to deactivate... He successfully deactivates Data with the electrical attack, right? That scene, to me, says, 
I'm in control, follow me. That's another reason why I mentioned the dictator comment, because I can't feel that someone who legitimately believes in his cause would be willing to do that maneuver. The only reason to do that is to solidify his control over the populace. That does not further his cause at all. In fact, if anything, it'd probably hurt his cause. Because, I mean, God's sakes, he just attacked someone who was going out of his way and doing everything possible to help him. And granted, the other people in this colony are frickin' weenies anyways, but let's not get into that. Next point. Let's assume that he's... You know, he's he's willing to allow some people to vote on this and decide whether, not the, whether or not they want to leave or stay. Okay. Let's say he's also decided to get more information. Why not, even if he he decides to stay, and even if several people decide to stay with him, why not plan for an evacuation just in case? That, that preventative maintenance is a thing. In fact, it's a, a mandatory aspect of society. Any structurally or, structural organization of any societal matter requires the ability to deal with the uncertain. That's, that's part of backups. That's part of planning. You don't plan. I have a plan right now in case a tornado hits here. It's not going to. It never will. But just in case I have that plan, because I am not an idiot. And also because I've lived in a place where tornadoes are regular. But you get the point. <laughs> God. There's another point. Back to the dictator thing. There's a point where one of the gentlemen... Forgive me, I don't know their names. I barely remember Gaussman's name. I don't remember her name. Uh, she, I'm not going to say anything about her. She's enamored with androids. The end. I've got nothing to add to that, really. Um, he, uh, The other gentleman says, shouldn't we consider he's right and you're wrong? Isn't that a valid perspective? Because Goshevin's big argument is, well, he's wrong. Goshevin then responds to this by rhetoric, by just going to, we, this is our land and my grandfather and Robert Blue. He has no actual argument in favor of his side of the thing. That, that's, that's the problem. He never gives any kind of legitimate reason for wanting to say, this is me. And that's irritating to me, because his position is actually incredibly understandable. Now, I know not all of you are going to understand this, but any of you who love where you live right now, where your home is, I want you to picture that someone shows up and says, you got to leave, like, right now. What? You've got to leave. Now, imagine this equivalent circumstances. They're telling the truth. They're here to help you. Someone else is going to come on later and kill you in the face and destroy all of your things and stuff and the land you're on. And you need to get the hell out of Dodge in order to avoid that fate. Is it not understandable that wanting to leave, wanting to not leave is a really big thing? Data even mentions in his diatribe to Riker that some people do not believe of the severity of the threat. Some people believe negotiation is going to be an option. Some people view fighting as the only possibility, right? Isn't that understandable, especially in the absence of proper knowledge, acknowledgement? In fact, if anything, I'm amazed that Data didn't say, Riker, excuse me, can you do me a favor and lock into these coordinates and have them phaser... I mean, I know this this wouldn't have worked, but you know, phaser the the reservoir or whatever the the aqueduct from orbit to really demonstrate that data doesn't even have to do anything necessarily in order to ensure that their their colony is destroyed to get across the point of exactly what kind of threat they're facing, right? And of course, data's final argument is one of the most logical ones of all. This is a thing that is replaceable. People are not, and that is a very base logical argument. 
But of course, Goshiman's an idiot who may or may not want to hold on to his power. And the only reason I say that that's a maybe and that he wasn't quite written that way is because right at the end he's like, oh, I really was. I was willing to die here for this. Yeah, that's nice. Um, look at my notes here. Uh, there's this one point where they're having a little meeting and they're saying, we have to convince Goshevin. One of them says, why do we have to? Why do we need to convince Goshevin? Now, I found that funny because two uh, points come to my mind immediately. Point number one, the goal here is to help people. Getting as many people off the planet as, as at a time is as possible is kind of the goal here. We are literally here to save lives. But the second reason is politics. Goshevin was an elected leader who is presented as if he is charismatic and someone who should be well-venerated and, and as swayer of the people. Lord knows that despite having, as I mentioned earlier, no argument whatsoever, no actual factual thing on his side of the, the argument, he was able to say, yes, you are with me, yay! Now, I'm not complaining about that part. Like I said, this episode is simultaneously great and awful in several respects to the, to the primary plot of Down on the Planet. Because... Goshevin, it's, it's, it just all revolves around him. It makes perfect sense. It is very human, especially that since these are humans, remember, that they would be more swayed by the rhetoric and the emotional impulse rather than the logical discourse of what faces them. That makes sense. Imagine, I imagine many humans, including me, would be more swayed by an emotional attachment rather than by a logical one. So then... Goshevin attacks Data. <sighs> Let's talk about the Sheliak briefly. Kirk was a lieutenant. Kirk, James T. Kirk, was a lieutenant when the Sheliak Treaty was written. Oof. And there has been zero communication between this power and the Federation ever since. What? <laughs> uh, why? Like, one thing I don't understand is why that little tidbit is added into the story. I don't get it. It would have been just as easy to say, the Sheliak are contacting us. We haven't heard from them since we signed the treaty a year ago. You know? <laughs> why have the 111 years gap? I actually don't understand why that's a thing. I suppose the point would be to emphasize that the, the colonists had time to settle, but for whatever reason, the Sheliak, despite having over a century and with legal claims to this planet, have never actually wandered over here until now. <laughs> Anyways. Um, I do like the fact... This is... Don't, get, don't mistake me. I do enjoy this episode. I do like the definition of victory here. The Enterprise could just take on that Celiac ship. And, <laughs> done. All right, there we go. We've got the time. And I do like that the transporters have basically been removed from the equation. Uh, I, I know that sounds weird, but if the transporters weren't, evacuating 15,000 people would be a joke. It'd be a little crammed on the Enterprise, but they could do it basically now. But no. Instead, transporters don't work. That means... <laughs> And again, 15,000 people. That's going to take a while. And that makes sense, and I like that. The definition of victory is very tightly defined here because 
victory here is getting these people off this planet alive. Probably not without... Be, I, I don't know how much they're going to be able to take with them either. Now, the fact that in the end they managed to get an actual colony ship to get them off here means they're probably going to be able to take something other than just you know the clothes on their body, but you get the point. So, I love... I, I love uh, how Worf is like, their homeworld is quite some time away. It will take a while to communicate with them. Okay. And then they have instantaneous back-and-forth communication. I have heard fans bend over backwards trying to explain that. I've never heard an argument that really fits for me personally. If you guys have one, by all means. What might have worked a little bit better is, let's just rewrite this phrase slightly, they are known to be rather bureaucratic. Uh, it might take some time to get a signal. Bam! Problem solved. Because now we have the same, have the ability to have instantaneous communication with them, and the delay that is built into the episode, so we have a bit before the first Shelly-Eck interaction, is because of the fact that it took that long to get a hold of someone who is willing to talk back. Anyways. Um, so... There's a scene where Riker pops in, and they beam out and in a cargo container thing, which melts. Nice scene. Good prop, too. I liked that. Um, and then Riker leaves. What? Just came in to check on your progress. Why? Like, I actually don't understand that. Later on, Picard does the same thing. Walks in. How's it going? Exactly, exactly as you'd expect. Okay. And then he leaves. What? Now, in hindsight, I know why these scenes are happening. Because it's comedy. The entire C-plot of Geordi, Wesley, and O'Brien trying to do the impossible with the transporters is there for comedy, to add some levity to the scene. Because, really, this is actually a fairly dark episode. Or at least it should have been. This should have been one of the darker episodes of the season, and considering the other episodes in this season, that's saying something. Um... So I, I'm kind of with it. It's just funny to me. I do wonder where they're beaming things to and from. Oh, to the planet, you say? Remember, they're still doing beaming tests when they're at warp to go intercept the Sheliac vessel. Unless we suddenly have the beaming device from Into Darkness, which let's not even get into that. This is going to sound like a weird thing, but I wonder how willing the Federation was to go to war over this. I don't mean to cast uh, badness towards Picard here. But do remember, Picard is at a state where he is actively willing to provoke an alien race who, we don't know if they're superior or inferior, but that's not relevant. He is reaching the point of being willing to take aggressive action that might be construed as an act of war in violation of a long-standing treaty in order to help people with relocation. Now, no, it's not exactly the same situ situation, but the similarities between this and the Maquis is a little bit weird. And you'll have to forgive me for having that fresh in my mind, because from my perspective, even though you've seen these episodes probably like a month ago at this point, uh, one of the episodes I just worked on was the Maquis in DS9. So, you know, this is kind of fresh in my mind. And I find myself wondering if the Federation would have backed Picard, if this did escalate into a conflict, if this did become war. Remember, he didn't really have Starfleet command guidance on this one. They had a ship, the colony ship, which is heading out. It's going to take three freaking weeks to get there. But that's it. I really wonder if the Federation would have supported the war on this matter. Like, legitimately. Considering this is the era of Star Trek in which the Federation is extremely anti-war. To the point where they are willing to, to really bend over backwards to avoid conflict. 
We'll talk more about that when we get to a later episode. The Defector. Excuse me. Um, then there's a scene which is awesome. Picard says, I, pursuant to this thing, la 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 la, I name this race who is currently in their hibernation season. And then he cuts off the viewer. And then he just enjoys the moment. And then the Sheliak hailed them back, and you hear the beeping. And they play it perfectly. The actors and the director nailed the timing of it. Because first the beeping happens, and the beeping happens. And then, after, you know, obviously everyone on the bridge knows what that beeping means. So Worf, almost hesitantly, after a couple beeps, is like, Sure, they're hailing us. And Picard's just like, da-da-da, wanders over, admires the placard of the USS Enterprise D there. Yeah. <sighs> and then he finally opens it back up, and they're like, we will give you three weeks. Thank you. I love that scene. And I also think that scene is really the strength of Picard versus all of the other captains. While all of the captains have their own varying command style, Picard is the person who will outmaneuver you at your own game, politically, diplomatically, bureaucratically, or socially, in other words. He will talk around you. He will talk circles around you. And he knows it, and he is damned good at it. That's one of the things I like about Picard. I don't actually have much else to say about this. I do have one last thing to say. I get the very strong opinion opinion that the concert was supposed to be a connecting theme framework throughout the episode, and I don't really feel like it succeeded at that. Unlike the poker game back in Measure of a Man, which was a you know obvious thematic parallel to the episode, uh, here the concert just feels like it doesn't fit. The episode begins with the concert, and Data admitting that he feels that he doesn't know how to do it properly, right? Like, I don't have soul. It is just me replicating a pre-existing... Uh, pattern. You know, I'm, I'm basically being a tape recorder right now. And then, at the, and then, of course, Data has to be creative and adaptive. And then the episode ends with him being complimented on his performance at the, at the concert. I feel like this is part of that intended thing I mentioned earlier with Melissa Snodgrass's original script, which I really wish I could have read, read uh, with the whole droid effect thing happening with Data. The idea that he is legitimately developing into a greater form of sentience and sapience than his relatively limited current stasis. I like that idea. But unfortunately, I don't actually have anything else to add. So, as ever, look forward to your guys' comments, and I'll see you next time.